0: Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom.
1: The Westwood One Podcast Network. I never realized I was going to live up to that vow that I took when I became a firefighter that I'd one day give up my life, but if this is what it has to be, uh, I'm fine. It's a decision I made to become a firefighter, so I accept it just take care of my family and then i had a uh you know a flashback to the day that i was sworn in and i kept on saying to myself you never thought you were going to live up to that vow and i said well today is it you know like you never thought you know when you woke up this morning that it would all end this way
2: never quit never quit game never quit radio
3: Marcus, welcome back to another episode. Today is September 11, 2019, and, and we're remembering 9-11-2001. And um, it's going to be a bit of a different episode than normal. It's quite heavy, but um, an incredible story we've
2: got today. Uh, 9-11 supposed to be kind of heavy. And I don't need to remember it. I think about it all the time. You know, it's most of us who were that generation. And that's a great part. Another part about this is now it's, we're getting to that age where the guys have, we, we, we've done our 20, right. And done the service. So hearing the stories of the guys, cause it all started right there. That's kind of our jumping off point. And up to this point. So one, yeah, the guy we have on a day, Joe, man, it's going to be something I can imagine. Yeah. 9-11 was what inspired me to volunteer in the fire department. I was in
3: sixth grade. So I was obviously pretty young but i remember we had to write a paper that next year in 7th grade about what you know what actions you would have taken or what you would have done and i would have just remember sitting on that moment and being like i'm young but there's got to be something i can do and that really what for me kind of sparked the interest in the fire department in the first place so today we've got a uh, a great listener story and uh, let's let's quickly get into that today's listener story comes from daniel And the story is called Surviving 9-11. Daniel starts by saying, Your podcast is changing lives. I know this to be true because it has brought hope and strength to me since you started a few years ago. I am a 9-11 survivor who stood directly below the second plane's impact in Manhattan that morning. Yes, right at Ground Zero. It took me 10 years to return to Ground Zero, and I still have not ventured into the Underground Museum. I hope to complete that journey this summer. I dedicated my life to service and to education following that terrible day. Here is my T&Q story. On September 11th, 2001, I stared into the gates of hell, survived, and for that I am thankful. I probably should not be here writing this to you, but I am. And when I go to that day, traveling through time, through all the moments of the past years, I see myself there, questioning, wondering why I had survived. September 11th, 2001, started much the same as many others of the previous few months. I awoke warm and happy next to my newlywed wife and began my day. Now, to be honest, the start of my day for any person commuting to Manhattan isn't all lollipops and fairy tales. There's a long day of driving, running, trains, more trains, crowds, smelly people, and more than the occasional delay. But that morning, I was up and ready, ready to start my day at 140 West Street and then head into the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. The towers I would always look for when I approached the city, the icons of my youth, the symbols of all that is New York. Two words, I to this day proudly profess as me, New York. There was always something electric, like static, that followed my thoughts about working in the Big Apple. Goodness gracious, I had made it. I would worked at the World Trade Center, New York. A new husband, a new corporate man, I tied my tie and headed out. And by headed out, I mean headed up because my wife and I were living in her parents' basement. Chris had just started teaching. It was her second day in the classroom with five and six-year-olds. And I was learning how to trade in my army greens for the white-collar world of business. We had to save money. Now, here's where you'll say, oh, it's another one of those stories, but I assure you that it's pure and exact truth. When I walked to the first floor, my mother-in-law, Carol, was there, and she was making me breakfast. Now, you might not think that that's anything special, but it was. This was not routine. In fact, it had never happened prior to that day, and we started to talk, the two of us. Love our Irish. I can't shut up if I tried Trait, and we started talking. There was a homemade buttered roll in the toaster oven and Dunkin' Donuts coffee in the hopper, so instantly we were not in a rush. I began to talk about my day... How I was hoping for a big lunch at Sparks, we were hoping to land a big telecom deal with J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, the conversation continued till I realized I was about to be late for my train, my express on the Metro North direct to Grand Central Station. Mom quickly poured my coffee into a Trumbull Fire Department travel mug, adding one last shot of sugar. Right as I was about to dart, I shook the mug over the sink. The top flew off sending a wave of coffee off the side of the sink and onto my shirt and tie. I was livid, growling. Ma, Carol, my mother-in-law, gave me some advice. Something along the lines of, No big deal, life is short. This exchange likely saved my life. I was delayed. I was not inside Tower 2 at 9.03. Fast forward, I remember running through Grand Central, but not so fast as to keep me from looking up and appreciating the gorgeous ceiling, the constellations on the roof, a daily reminder of the beauty and class of the city. I traveled the connector to Penn Station, grabbed the 1-9 and started down to Church Vesey Street Stop. I was late, but I might make it to the 15th floor of Verizon's 140 West Street and then head over to WTC 2 by 9 a.m. This is where everything changed. It makes me sick to think of this moment, a metallic taste in my mouth. As I exited the subway right outside the turnstile at the bottom of the stairs, bathed in the cool morning dampness, I was nearly knocked to the floor. A black businessman dove down the stairs, landing on a combination of the first metal metal-lined step and pure concrete. Now, I distinguished the man was black because he was nearly colorless, a gray, an ashen, terrified gray. He grabbed me and screamed, a plane, a plane just hit the tower. He then began to frantically tug and pull at the turnstile, desperately trying to escape, to run, to get back on the subway. This was pathetic. The exit of the subway only moves one way. He was trapped. He'd have to walk back up, dumbfounded, and a bit of a seasoned commuter at this point. I thought, this guy's nuts, and started up the stairs. Then I heard them, the sirens. They were faint at this point. Coming to life and approaching the entire heart of the city's first responders were en route to the Trade Center. I wasn't even to the top of the stairs when it also occurred to me that that guy was really well-dressed for a psycho. That's when I saw the paper. Goodness gracious, this is hard to type. It was everywhere, rolling in thick waves down toward the Canyon of Heroes, where I had not so long ago watched the world champion Yankees roll as hometown heroes. The man who dove down the steps had the right idea. The world was coming to an end. When I turned to see the towers, I was expecting to see the magnificent image of all things New York— Instead, I was given a first-hand look into the gates of hell. A moment here. I mean that. The gates of hell. The North Tower was literally breathing fire. As the wind swept through the tower, the tongues of flame began licking in and out of the wound. That's when I saw them, by the hundreds, waving and I'm sure screaming from the wreckage. Victims were hanging out of the building, straining to lean beyond the billowing smoke of horrific flames. We all began to scream. Not scream in terror, scream in desperation. They're coming! Hold on! You're going to be okay! Moments later, I walked around St. Paul's and found myself standing with the church's cemetery on my left. I stopped screaming. I began to realize the ladder trucks would be worthless. The firefighters, God rest their souls, would have to walk in all their gear into the fire, into hell to save these people. I'm sure shock began to set in. Life became blurry, a series of images, streams of people running from the towers, others running towards the towers, most looking straight up. This is where I began to realize how lucky I am to be alive. I started to think, you were in the army, you know how to provide first aid, get in there, grab someone, pull them out. Another sphere said, leave, live, you'll be in the way. It's time to go. The heroes are on the way. I turned and began to walk up Vesey Street towards City Hall when the guy who was next to me screamed, damn it, as he threw his Wall Street Journal to the street. When I turned back, I saw an image that has followed my thoughts invading more times than I can express. Having jumped from the tower, a man was falling. I remember him vividly dressed in a blue suit, white shirt and red tie. He chose to jump or he fell as the flames of the thousands of gallons of jet fuel were literally melting the building from its innards. As the crescendo of the crowd's screams became deafening, an even more deafening roar began and ended in an instant. The second plane was about to strike the South Tower. I was in the Army, and I had seen many explosions and had live artillery literally fly over my head. What was inbound is beyond anything I can express. Lower Manhattan was vibrating with the scream of jet engines. I remember diving to the ground and rolling against the stone wall bordering St. Paul's Churchyard. I honestly thought the sound was coming from Tower 1. Nobody was looking at the South Tower. We were blindsided. The fireball was massive, catastrophic, excruciatingly hot, and the fumes of jet fuel were everywhere. The taste. I can still taste that sour fuel, but the first moment is nearly frozen, like slow motion in every sense. The flames, you've seen them, rolled out in a glowing, rounded orange, red, and black cloud. Instantly, the exit wound belched flaming debris that flew directly over all of us on the ground. The concussion and comet of flying debris sounded like a freight train flying directly overhead. Distinctly, I can hear the sizzle and snap of flying shattered glass, the death throes of a dying glass chime. I don't believe I screamed, but I do know all of my U.S. Army Ranger training immediately kicked into a thermonuclear you-need-to-save-yourself mode. Aside, I typed that because if I didn't just make myself smile at being silly, I would break down. I honestly thought I was about to die, and I knew America was going to all-caps war. I rolled to my right and began running up Vesey Street, thinking about the South Tower had been hit so hard it was about to fall as a tree would after being struck by a fatal blow. I had the image of a rolling inferno rolling behind me, rolling to consume me. At that moment, she fell. She. The woman who fell becomes a metaphor of the entire day for me. There was a woman on Vesey. She looked wonderful, clad in her high-priced business attire, a tribute to the contemporary strong American woman. She was running right next to me. To my left, I remember a man diving directly into the plate glass of a deli window ahead of the thump, thump, thump of a man running over a car that was trapped by the swarm of humanity, the stampede of hysterics on the run. But the woman? She fell. Now, when I write fell, I mean fell flat as a two-year-old falls. Fall on your hands and tear your palms fall. I was sprinting past her. I truly, truly believed I was about to die, but I couldn't leave her. That's when he appeared. I turned thinking, I can't just let this woman be trampled. That's when he grabbed her. I mean this. He didn't say, excuse me. He didn't say, can I lend a hand? Would you care to dance? Let me help you up. I'm not sure who he was, but I think he was me. He ran full tilt, full sprint, and simply picked her up and kept running. Sprinting, then carrying, then jogging, then walking exhaustedly after a few blocks, I saw a Good Day New York news truck. I purposely walked in front of the camera. I hope it was live and yelled, This is a terrorist attack. I still wonder if they have footage of my terrified, angry rant that must have made the air that morning. I'm sure my ashen terror would blend into the grays of the cement through the scene. In that moment, I thought the second explosion was a bomb. Now I know it was a plane, but in that moment I was pulsing with terror, horrified, zombied. I began walking past City Hall to the subway. I remember thinking I'm dead, City Hall's next, or the subway I'm about to enter, or Penn or Grand Central Station. Silently walking past commuters still emerging from the subway, I began to think they are about to see what I just saw. They are entering through a gate from which few will return. I remember their faces questioning, spinning, and watching all of us moving away from downtown. I hope they all turned and left before the towers fell. I know many did not. They were caught in the massive wave of destruction about to happen as the towers fell. Since that day, my wife and I grew our loving family. I completed two master's degrees and worked professionally as a teacher and an adjunct college professor. I fight every day to fight the bad thoughts and memories. I pray and focus on my blessings. And of course, I never quit.
2: Daniel, thank you so much for sharing that story. When we're talking about the, the people who went in there and, and went through all of that, that kind of that own, their own action movie, if you will. And to hear the stories of how wonderful our people are, who who had to know, they all went through that. Each one of them is unique, and one of them is different. I mean, that it's like a bunch of video cameras. Because when something's that violent, they remember all of it, you know. And if they don't, it's just because it's hidden. Because there was a, a a moment that was so bad they they bypassed it. But all New Yorkers are warriors. Make no mistake about it. So thank you for writing in, man, and pointing that out to all of us. And it it is heavy, and it's a heavy. It took a whole heavy toll on us, but it made us the country and the the people that we are today, right? And um, it ought to let you know how wonderful our country is, and how fast we rebound. Because I, I run across some people, kids these days, that don't even know what 911 was. So, and we're still at war, <laughs> but we won't forget. We won't forget each other. and We won't forget the ones we lost. Not those in the uniform. Not those who had to go through it. So. Thank you again for writing in brother. Sometimes we get tossed in the lion's den and you kind of wonder why you make it out, but God has a plan for everybody, including you. If there's one thing that I've learned, it's that sharing your story is a powerful thing. There are people out there that need a kick in the ass and your story could be the one thing to change their life forever. Take a minute to share your story at teamneverquit.com forward slash podcast. Just click on the share your story button in the menu so we can encourage you along the way. Your story just might be shared on one of our upcoming episodes. (laughs)
0: Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
3: All right, today's Patreon question today comes from Corey. And Corey says, With today's society being portrayed so negatively through all these social media portals, is there anything other than tragedy that could reunite our country like we were on September 11, 2001? And if so, what?
2: Sure. Well, that was the tragedy. When that happened and then we took off and kind of our generation's coming together and with social media and everybody's business out, always think of this as one big family and everybody's business is out in the open. The internet is, uh, is kind of a electrical consciousness of everybody that's alive and on it i mean if you find on the internet i mean somebody's thinking it right yeah one of them crazy ideas he's like hey man i wonder if anybody's invented this you type it in there it's popped up man if somebody has it probably be best buzz with that dude you need to call him up and start a business right and and you need to understand that with that that families bicker and right now you kind of got a section of the family that likes to like back in high school when it was like, Hey, did you hear what he said about you? Did you hear what he said about you? Then they step back and and watch them just go at it. But in reality, man, you can't argue and bicker and, and go at each other as much as you can, unless you have love on the other side of that. And I mean, always remember that it's, uh, whatever you're hearing on the media, if you step back and look around you and you don't see that, then they're not talking about you and your environment. So you don't need to just automatically assume it's there. That's the problem we uh we sometimes look at a collective and think everybody is that certain way but it's not and we we we're a lot smarter than most than than we act sometimes and um you know Americans we know the right thing to do but we'll do all the wrong stuff just to make sure we didn't leave anything out and then we'll come back and we'll realize that but the most important thing is that you remember that we're Americans and we I mean that that's something i mean that's why so many people try to get over here and call themselves that it's the most wonderful place that's ever been created. It wields the mightiest sword to ever walk the earth. I mean, you can be born nothing with no last name, and and be the king of that. We don't call it a king; we call it a president, right? First lady, and you can play king in 48 years, and then you got the Congress and the Senate, those aunts and uncles, and then you got all us out here in the masses, the cousins, the brothers, and the sisters, just all vying for a job in the in the, whatever the family business is to keep this United States going. It's not a place; it's a people, right? I was thinking about this earlier, man. It's like you're driving down the road. when I was, I was taking my kids to school, and you, you ever drive down the road and you see somebody haul ass past you, you're like, oh he's driving the speed limit, <laughs> maniac!" <laughs> yeah. And then the next day, you're late for school, and you're I'm late for school hauling ass driving through there, and you know, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you never know what somebody's having to go through at any given time, right? And he, it's real easy to just automatically point that. which you're supposed to, right? But uh, but think about it. Always put yourself in that person's position. That's why. I, I walk in anywhere. I just imagine you're my brother or sister. I know it, and you don't. And you I know, I, I, in a little bit, I'll convince you of that. And If, if you're just so bent out of shape about something, and that's, everybody's got their feathers up. I mean, Americans, we pride for people. I mean, everyone looks at the conservatives as bad or the liberals as bad, but that's our family. The liberals and conservatives show you what's beautiful, and they jerk us out of the you know they jerk us in, in the, into the future. Conservatives, they 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 remind you of what we've accomplished, and we like to hey, let's enjoy this for a little bit it's like, it's love of the opposites. We have that here. And if you realize that you can't exist without your opposite around, because if, if they didn't have us to bitch at, what would they do? You know what I'm talking about? That's and right. if we didn't do stuff for them to bitch at, what would we do? We'd be bored. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know that's the best part about what, um, with New York, man. I, like I said, I, I love those. Man, that's my, my big city home, if you will. I love going up there. And I was up there for about a couple of weeks before I realized everyone wasn't screaming at me. That's just how they talk. They just show emotion through their voice. And, you know, we're quiet down here. Everything's slow. Hell, we talk slow. It's like have a, that's why everybody in the city better have a redneck friend. And if you're from the country, have a city <laughs> have friend. A city friend. Yeah, man. Uh, it's just a different kind of jungle. That's all it is. Yeah, we do things differently down here than y'all do up there. That's because y'all all live around each other. You, you know, there's more. You can help each other out. Still, it's still kind of primitive in the world. You live in a city in the United States. That's the maximum of, of how well things are. As you get away from those, you go back in time, so to speak. And out here, you know, we still have to do things kind of Western. Because if you lose all that electricity and all that tech, you're going to come right back to us. Right? I mean, you're just out here with the horses and doing all that. (laughs) And if you run out of gas, you're going to need a horse. Howdy. So uh, never forget that. You go back far enough, this was smaller and smaller. We were all together. And then we just kind of went out on some adventures and exploring. But there's no the the only difference between us is that we haven't hung out long enough to appreciate what the other side has been doing. And because we don't understand that, people get upset. Like, why don't you understand this? I'm like, man, most a lot of people ain't on Facebook. You know, they, don't, they just go about their business. Yeah. You, you don't have to get bit out of, you don't have to wake up in a bad mood. It's not like make, when you wake up in the morning, you make your bed, and you go throughout your day. At the end of the day, you do all the dishes and and, and stuff like that. Because if you wake up in the morning and you go in there and the dishes in the sink, it's kind of like, man, you start, you got yesterday in there. Right? So you're starting off in a kind of, i got to clean the dish. Right. So you walk Ugh. in the clean kitchen. At the end of the day, there's a bed made. It's like walking into a, something brand new almost. Yeah. Like walking into the store and sleeping on the, the display. It's way more inspiring <laughs> than a sink full of dishes. Yeah, that's why I clean my tools at the end of the day. Because it's like walking into a hardware store. You yeah. just want to buy oh, everything ooh. and you want to use it. But like, look at this new tool, man. i got to use this thing. And uh, when you don't clean it, it just kind of sits there. We're all we're all the same, in all our kind of our mannerisms. Just we, our environments are a little different, and we're we're we adapt to all of our surroundings. So if 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 you run across one of us walking around somewhere, and they're so far removed, and just think about that. There's places out there that just people don't have what you have. Yeah. And if you complain about any of the other than food, water, and safety, you just I think you can just complaining, right?
3: Just complaining.
2: <laughs> so. uh yeah, this this place is wonderful, and so are the people in it. That's one thing I get to see, going, being on the road as much as I am, 300 days plus usually, million miles I hit on the plane this, this the other day. I truly get to see how wonderful everybody is. Most people aren't going to be a bad mood around me, you know? So I get to see it, you know, everyone on, on how everybody treats each other. And it's funny because everyone, when we're somewhere, man, everybody does everything, a handout stuff, you know, they kind of be nice to each other, and then somebody it's just like i think the family right it's the same way if an yeah. outsider comes in like who the hell is this they gotta earn their respect and yeah. that's what you have to do like most people you just walk up in there and they automatically assume you're gonna have to have some respect no man you got to it's only a bad neighborhood if you don't know how to handle yourself that's right yeah you know what I'm talking about? i mean some people think where well, we live is a bad neighborhood and we just live in a country I and then mean, the animals still attack you out where we live people get <laughs> you know what i'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. and uh in there, it's a zoo. It's like some mystical animal. Look at that deer! <laughs> <laughs> oh, deer eating my flowers this morning when I woke up. And uh, it's just uh, it's something. It, it is, man. If you, you, you truly need to get out and explore this place to appreciate it, and uh, I mean, you, you drive to a different state. Imagine you're driving to a kind of a different country, if you want. Yeah, and learn it like that. Learn it from the basics, like how they talk. Right? Don't open your mouth until you hear what they're talking and say, like, all right, where am I at here? Is this this? this is the badlands or no, nah, it's not badlands. We're all civilized. <laughs> yeah. You know, most everybody's kind of civilized. That's the funny thing. And thinking like, can you go in there? It's dangerous. Well, if someone's actually living in there, it, there's a little bit of civilization going on. Trust me, you'll know the spot you ain't supposed to walk into. There'll be all kinds of signs that say, do not <laughs> do come not, in here. Don't. <laughs> Thanks for your question, Corey. We we really appreciate it. If you want to have your question
3: asked on the show, join us on Patreon. We got exclusive access to content We've got behind-the-scenes stuff. You get early access to episodes. You get some really cool swag. If you want to do that, join us at patreon.com slash teamneverquit.
0: Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching.
3: All right, let's get into this interview. So, today we've got Joe Torrillo, a 9 11 survivor, a New York firefighter, and a motivational speaker. This interview is going to be incredible. Let's jump in. Joe Torrillo, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. I want to start this thing off by just doing a little icebreaker. So I volunteered in the fire department since I was about 15 years old. And one of my very first calls when I was young was a car fire. And my responsibility, my job was to go and bust the windows out of the car that was on fire to ventilate it. And I was pumped. I was excited. I got my tools. I'm all geared up. I'm ready to do this thing. And I bust out the windows of the wrong car. Oh, my God. Yeah, it it was crazy. So 25 years of service for you. You've got to have some amazing stories. Would you mind sharing us some, some crazy or funny stories you've got from your time in the service? Well,
1: you know what? I think that there's a couple of things that I can remember. Uh, one night, there was a, a brand new Chevy Corvette crashed through a barrier and landed about 10 feet down on the entrance to a tunnel that connects uh, Manhattan into Brooklyn. And I was working with this old time, uh, you might say a salty captain who had this great reputation of having been there and done that. And I, I think the guy basically was a little in love with himself, but that's a, you know, that's a, a conversation, you know, uh, at another time. But in any event, of course, you know, the the, the Corvette is fiberglass and it, the fire just wouldn't go out. You know what I mean? They, uh, we should have put out that car fire like instantly, but the fiberglass just wasn't going out. And then when we finally got the fire out, now we had to get close enough to see, hey, somebody must be in there. You know, you have to do a search, you know, for a body. And I, I moved it over. I didn't see anything. And then the captain came over, and he transmitted what's called the 10:45 code one, which means we have a body that we have a victim confirmed deceased. And I'm like, I said to myself, I just searched this car. So I says, Cap, I says, Where's the you know, where's the body? He says, Joey, look in the back, look in the back of the car. There's a hand. I says, well, a hand. I said, I can't believe all that's left of this whoever this was, a guy, a girl, all all of that's left is a hand, but the thing looked but it looked like it was swollen like twenty times the size of a human hand. Now this is a guy who supposedly has been there, done that, had a chest the medals. And I look close, I says, Hey Cap, I says, uh I don't know how to tell you, but that's a baseball glove. <laughs> oh, my <gosh. laughs> oh my gosh. And then another night And then another night we were, it was in the middle of the summer, I came into the firehouse and there was a report of a fire in a vault. But we used to get these reports all the time because we have these electrical vaults in Manhattan underneath the ground where all the major power lines are spliced. And usually after the winter, uh, when we have heavy snowstorms, and, you know, they spread uh, salt, you know, and ice demelter all over the streets, when that stuff finally melts, all that salty water goes down into the sewers and into the manholes of the vaults, and that salty water corrodes the insulation on the electrical lines, and once the insulation corrodes, they start arcing and sparking, and sometimes they will blow that manhole cover like 60 stories in the air. You've never seen anything like this. So this happens all the time. You know, uh, right around April is when we start getting all these vault holes, explosions. Well, it turns out that it wasn't it it wasn't an electrical vault. It was in the actual money vault of the Brinks Armored Car Company. You know? Oh yeah. Oh my God.
2: Brinks (laughs) Armored,
1: yeah. Yeah. So on the other side of the World Trade Center, just behind Number Seven World Trade Center, which also collapsed on 9/11, there was an underground. garage where all the Brinks trucks used to go at night and empty their money. So when we got there, smoke was coming out from under the ramp that went underground. We didn't know. We, you know, we crawled down the outside ramp under the garage. I saw about 150 uh, Brinks trucks. I still don't know what's going on, but there was so much fire. We couldn't see anything. I had the hose line, and it took us about, I don't know, maybe a good 45 minutes to darken down the fire, and we're all crawling through paper up to our chest. And after the smoke cleared, we were able to take off our mask. Men were running with shotguns and four foot uh uh like four foot wide push brooms. And when the smoke cleared, I was in chest high of hundred dollar bills.
4: Oh my <laughs> gosh.
1: Five hundred and
2: fifty million dollars no in way. unmarked money burnt up. Oh my god. <laughs> so you were basically swimming in a yeah, a fiery ocean of money. <laughs> yeah that was incredible and what happened was they locked us in they
1: wouldn't let us go out they called up the fbi the new york city fire marshals the police department and they actually wanted to strip search all the firefighters oh there they wouldn't <laughs> let us leave because you know they thought that we were sticking money down in our booth i under walking huh? out that yeah.
2: stuff He stuck to you anyways that's man i was in new york uh, it-, it was a few years back i I, was- I had just gotten off the train i went into uh my publishing house is in New York. I was walking up, and a, a steam pipe blew underneath the street, and there was, a, there was a cement truck that was parked right above it, and it fell down in there. I don't know if you remember this or not. That thing had went all the way down in there, all over that pipe, and that, that water frame was shooting above the building. It was right there at, uh, by the Waldorf, across the street yes. from it. Everybody, dude, talk about freaking out.
4: They thought
2: it was a bomb. Yeah, you know, it was something. It was crazy. You know, that's the nature uh, of New York City. At any given moment, you never know what's going to happen. That's why it's so exciting to live there.
1: It is exciting. You know, I mean, I've been there my whole life. And, you know, if I never saw it again, uh, it wouldn't be soon enough. You know, I get to travel now. I do so much uh, speaking around the country. And it was an eye-opener to get to see other places. Matter of fact, I just got back from Houston, Texas last week.
4: Oh, that's where we live.
2: Well, I tell you what, man. Yeah. Uh, you came down at the at our hot season. It's like the temperature yeah, down yeah. here is kind of scorched earth. So, uh, uh <laughs> well, also, I was going to ask you, man, how did you get into being uh, a firefighter?
1: You know what? That's a real good question. You know, I came from a family of uh, civil servants. Uh, my father and my uncles, yeah, if they were all alive, they would all be in their hundreds, right? Matter of fact, my father, if he was alive, he'd be 107 years old next week, and so they all grew up during the depression and, uh, you know, they always used to stress to me, my brothers that, you know, we should get a civil service job because, you know, it gave you all the benefits and, uh, you know, it was steady work. And so I guess I realized that I was destined to be a civil service worker. There really you no know, doctors and, uh, and lawyers in my family. We were not like white collar professional people. So in any event, I figured, you know what, if I'm going to end up in civil service, you know, let me go after the, the, the department that obviously pays the best money and and gives you the best benefits. And so I really probably wanted to be a a New York city police officer more than I wanted to be a firefighter because my cousin and my uncle were cops in New York city. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And so I started off at 16 years old and, uh, I was going to an old boys Catholic high school in Brooklyn, New York. And I was just always a very anxious kid. I always liked to work, uh, and hustle. So uh, I lied about my age, and I got a job with the New York City Parks and Recreation Department uh, after school. I was uh, a junior in high school, and I had a city job working nights, which was unheard of back then. And I worked uh, all through my junior and senior year of high school and also through college. I was going to architecture and engineering school, And then I, after I graduated college, and then it was time to maybe start moving on, and I started taking all the civil service exams, you know, every exam that came out, New York City Police Officer, Department of Corrections, uh, uh, New Jersey State Trooper, Border Patrol. But when I found out that firefighters work one day, and then they work for three days, that really really enthused me because well, right. more than more than anything in this more than anything in the world the construction business was really my passion okay because i'm a self taught carpenter plumber electrician and that's what i really really loved doing i'm kind of like an artist you know with a circular saw and a hammer so I realized, wow, you know, if I'm going to really uh, become a civil servant, why not you know, pursue the New York City Fire Department? Because I can get a steady paycheck, work one day, and on my three days off, I could pursue what I really like. And that's swinging a hammer and doing home improvement work. And that's how I ended up really going into the fire department. I hate to say because I feel embarrassed to say it because it kind of sounds like, you know, you're very uh, – selfish for wanting to go into the department just because of the benefits. But don't get me wrong, I did like the idea of being a firefighter, but I wasn't like one of these little kids who used to run around the neighborhood with a little red plastic fire helmet, you know. But <laughs> but I have to tell you, after about twenty years on the fire department, I got up one morning after working a night shift in the firehouse. And typically, you know, you take a shower in the morning if you're gonna work the following day tour. And I took a shower, and I came out of the shower, and I was, I was dried and dressed, and now I was going to shave. And I'm looking in the mirror as I'm shaving, and for the first time, that patch on my shoulder of the New York City Fire Department, it stared me right in my eyes. And from that point on, it took me 20 years to realize that I had become something bigger than I ever could have been that I was given the honor and the privilege to play a very small part in one of the greatest emergency services on the face of the earth. And then I realized that my job had become like a religion to me, that every one of us who had sworn in to the fire department, we took a vow that one day we'd be willing to lay down our lives so that somebody else might live in the discharge of our duties. And that became so concrete to me, I realized that I had become somebody I never would have been had I not become a fireman.
2: Oh well that's that's because you guys go to war. I mean when you guys sign up and that, that oath you guys swear, that's the same oath that we take as well. And you identify yourself by the oath with the uniform. That's how everybody can know that you're in it. And it doesn't matter which one that you're in. And growing up, yes, it's the, exactly. the the civil service. I mean, that's the benefits are and that's what people don't understand. You throw that uniform on, it is a nuclear family. I mean, in, in every uniform yes. it should be exactly like this. You get our our medical dental. All that healthcare is taken care of. They get you back online, and then you're standing by in case the war comes. With us, it's from people. You guys, yes. I was talking to one of your brothers the other day, man. I was like, hey, look, n- don't. Uh, there's no real difference, and I'll tell you the only difference between what you guys and what we do when it comes to warfare. You guys go to work just like we do. You have a platoon of guys that you work with just like we do. You get close. I mean, the only that's how you get become brothers is you have to go into the, into the hellfire together, right? That when yeah, you guys, exactly. when we jock up with our uniforms, you guys do the same thing. All right. And when, we, when you would go right. out there and you, the only thing, the difference is, is our enemy has a face and a voice. And I, I mean, most of the time you can identify it and, and there's something other, like somebody sent us to the, to that enemy. You guys get called right. in when fire is, is the war and it eats and it feeds and it breathes and it's, and you guys are armed. The sword you guys carry is water. That's the most powerful element on the planet, and you guys are armed with it, and that hose becomes your sword. And You go in there, you got to know how it moves, it, it how it breathes, how it eats. I mean, it's amazing to me, a lot of people, they don't have... If you live in a neighborhood, you love your house, the first time a firefighter comes to visit shouldn't be when it's on fire, right? You need to throw some barbecues, have the boys over, get to know the community, let them take a look at the house, so if anything happens, they already know their way through there. Because if they have to go through there blind, like it normally happens, then... You're probably going to lose a lot more stuff than you normally would if they had already had had seen it. That's the beautiful thing about community, and that's ultimately why y'all's job is so important. Uh, on the pay scale, it's yeah. reversed, and it's kind of crazy. It shouldn't be that way. If you have put your life on the line for any anything that can seriously kill you in the defense of somebody or people who call you to help— then in my, in my opinion, you guys should have whatever you need at any given time, because it's, it's not, and you said it too. He's like, I, and I love to do construction, but, but when you sign up and you throw a uniform on, you can actually have two lives. The uniform side right. shows you how a perfect nuclear family works, right? you go into work, you, you make, right. you do your job. Right. Somebody's above you, below you. And then they push your ass up as you get older, just like you're supposed to do in a family. And that's why it's so right. crazy when one of us dies, especially, I mean, if, if a police officer dies or firefighter, we all feel that. I mean, we mourn for you of guys course. just like you mourn for us because it's one big family. You'd you, you have to think is if somebody ever invaded us, I mean, you guys would, we'd just all, everyone in uniform would adopt one uniform and just go straight to that Absolutely. And, and then we'd push because anything we do in the military, we have firefighters, you take you can take each job that's in the military and place it in a job that's actually in America, all right? That and it has right, to be
1: exactly
2: Yeah, it has to be that way. We that's why our military comes from our people and that's why I mean, we, we line up in the morning, everyone looks at the, at the uniform job is you got to look, you know, you got to put your uniform, in, you got to get in ranks in the morning. Well, yeah, it's just like your family breakfast. I mean, you're checking to see if everybody's okay. If everybody needs anything and what, what they explain you know what the boss expects of the day. And then we go out and do our jobs, firefighters, lawyers, doctors, you know, we have accountants, anything and everything who, who truly, right. who truly knows the city, someone who lives in one part of it or those who, who, who work every part of it.
1: Exactly. Well, you know what happens is, you know, obviously, you know, there's, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of firefighters in every little town, in every big city, all across the United States. As a matter of fact, in every country around the world, we have they'll have fire departments by and large. But you know, every fire department kind of tailors its operations based upon the buildings that they protect. So, although you know, generally we'll have you know similar operations. You know, each department will will tailor their operations that work best for, for the buildings that they serve in and protect.
2: Oh yeah, man, it's kind of one of them deals when it, when you get in and you get that fire in you. I mean, after you've been in, sometimes you feel like you're insignificant when you're in the uniform. But you need to understand yeah. when people look at the uniform, they look at one big firefighter. I mean, you guys are completely separate yeah. from the police. It's kind of it's kind of funny because you guys are brothers. The minute you absolutely step into that uniform, you've told everybody. <clears throat> what you are and who backs you up. That's why when somebody in the right. uniform screws up, we all take the hit. It's like one big, right. we all get one big black eye. That's why it's so important to police our own. Sometimes we get afraid to say, "Hey, you need to be doing this, or you need to be doing that." But in reality, that's why our countrymen leave us alone. Right? When we're policing our own and we're just doing what we're supposed right. to be doing, then they leave us alone. But if our guys start getting out of line, then they're like, "Hey, what the hell's going on over there?" And, yeah,
1: uh, right. Right. Of course. That's of course that happens all the time. Sure.
3: Joe, you have a pretty incredible story from September 11th, 2001, and that's really what
2: we'd love to get into today.
1: I'm going to try and give you what we call the nickel version. I'm going to try and narrow it down because it could be a little bit worthy.
2: Bro, you just do what you do, man. You can you can talk about whatever you need. Yeah, on September 11th, 2001, almost 18 years ago, obviously
1: we all know that America was attacked four times in three different locations. You know, it was probably the worst attack uh, on in recent memory on American soil, You know, obviously, besides what happened in Pearl Harbor in 1941, something that nobody could believe was really happening as the incident was unfolding. Well, I began my career in that little firehouse right across the street from the World Trade Center in January of 1981 uh, when I graduated the fire academy as a new fireman of all 357 firehouses they could arbitrarily place me. They placed me in that firehouse across the street from the World Trade Center. And I was there for about 15 and a half years. And in 1996, I was ready with no pun intended to start climbing the ladder. I wanted to become a lieutenant, maybe then a captain and a chief. And so I took the lieutenant's exam and I did very well. And when I got promoted to lieutenant, they take you out of your original firehouse and place you in a firehouse on the other part of the city where they don't want you supervising friends. The fire department thinks they're going to turn you into a manager, which really never happens because I don't care what firehouse you work in. It's the same clowns, you know, just with a different circus. You know what I mean? It is what it is. But they actually believe, you know, you're now becoming some kind of a manager. But in any event, you let them pretend it really works. So as a new lieutenant um, uh, about four months into this promotion, I got hurt seriously. One matter of fact, it was new year's Eve of 1996 going into 1997, the ball had just touched the ground in times square when the alarm came into the firehouse where I was working in Brooklyn, New York, where I was born and raised. And there was a report of a woman trapped on the second floor in the rear of a building. We were the third engine company assigned to get to the location, but we got there first. And as soon as we pulled into the block, people had just come out of the local Catholic church after attending Midnight Mass. We couldn't even see the, the the street. That's how much smoke. And people were jumping up and down and screaming, there's an old lady trapped on the second floor in the rear of that building. So we were the first company on the scene. And then a the ladder company showed up. They went up to the roof. Me and, and my guys, we start up the interior stairs with our hoses. And the firefighters on the roof broke out a glass skylight over the staircase to let some of the heat, smoke and gases out mm-hmm. and the fire to make it easier for the engine company like me to get in there and uh and put the fire out and the skylight came down over the staircase as I was going up and it basically almost took my left thumb right off from my hand and of and then the worst part was that I cut our hose line in half so now we had no water so this was a bad situation anyway eventually we got the fire out they rushed me to the hospital and they put me into surgery and they Kind of like reattached my left thumb, and this was going to be a near career mending injury. And I was devastated because I just become a lieutenant. I was already studying for the captain's exam, and the doctor said you're going to be out of work for about a year while you convalesce, and you're not going to sit at home. You got to come to headquarters and take a desk job. Well, I mean, I didn't have any office skills. I didn't have. I had no idea I'm a carpenter, plumber, electrician. What am I going to do in this office for a year? I figured, let me make the best of it. And so when I got to headquarters, I was thinking, I hope they don't have me answering telephones, because if you called headquarters and I answered, what would you really think? Tony Soprano's house, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, I get it, right? But anyway, you know, they had various assignments that need to be filled, and they asked if I wanted to work in the Office of Fire, fire Safety Education. I'm like, fire safety education, what's that? Who are they and what do they do? So the gentleman handing out the assignment says, I don't know. They're up on room 712 on the seventh floor in headquarters. Go up there and introduce yourself, and they'll give you something to do for the next year. So I got up on the elevator, went up to the seventh floor, walking through the hallway in headquarters. I see room 712. I knock on the door. I walk in, and I bump into an old friend by the name of Tommy Tropia, who is now a captain, and him and I were firefighters many years before. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm now a lieutenant. He's a new captain. He's, hey, Joey, what's going on? What happened? I heard you got hurt. So I told him the story about the fire on New Year's Eve. He says, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know, Tommy. I said, they said I got to work in the Office of Fire Safety Education. And he says, oh, he says really. He says, great. He says, I'm running the program. So I said to myself, all right, how bad is it going to be? My friend is going to be my boss for the next year. I said, Tommy, big question. He said, yeah, what's that? I said, what do you do here? He says, I don't know. I just got here. It's going to work out just fine. <laughs> yeah, he just got there. He had no idea what this program was all about. And so in essence, it was a whole group of firemen like me that were recuperating from various injuries and illnesses. And because we couldn't be an active firefighter in a firehouse, they would send us out Monday to Friday to one of the 2000 schools in New York City and go into the classroom and talk to the kids about preventing and surviving a fire. I said, Tommy, look, I think it's a great idea. I says, but I don't have any speaking experience. I'm not a teacher by trade. And I says, I don't have any college credits and education. I said, I really don't think I belong here. He says, Joey, don't worry about it. He says, nobody belongs here. He says, this office is like a box of broken toys. So I said, all right, Tommy, look, you know, uh, I love you, brother. I says, I'm a team player. I'll do whatever I got to do. You know, but I'll, I'll try to make the best of it. And after about four months of hanging around the office, trying to learn how to use a computer and, and, and of course, answering telephones and helping Tommy doing payroll scheduling, after about four months, one of the guys in the office called in sick. And Tommy asked me, hey, Joe, Billy just called in sick. Would you go out and and, and take his uh, his uh, event at at a local uh, grammar school? Would you go to, you know, I said, all right, Tommy. And he says, uh, you know, what do I do when I get there? He said, I no. said, take your helmet, take your firefighting clothing, take an air mask, take a book of matches, take coloring books, take a smoke detector, just go in there and talk to the kids, you know, dial 911, don't hide, go outside. I said to myself, I don't know if I have enough to say to stretch this out over 45 minutes. But the bonus part was that there were always a lot of really uh, beautiful teachers in the school, so that was always a plus going there. <laughs> right? But in any event, I yeah, – I mean, well, almost everybody looks 40, at the negative
2: parts of, of of the situation, man. There's always good parts, too. You got to focus <laughs> on that one. Like, you know, you, know you, you got hurt. I remember when they pulled us off the line – Same thing happened to me, man. I had a career ending thumb injury. I had to have all the tendons pulled out of my forearm and pinned back together and all that mess. And it did just enough physical therapy to work my safety on my rifle just so I could go back over and get beat up again. Right. But a lot of those a lot of those jobs that you're talking about in our community, they're invented for the guys who get hurt. So because if they, they, they can't stay on the line, they got to step to the side, but they're still operators. And it's kind of one of those deals where it's an operator's chance or an opportunity to get a look on the inside of what's going on. And kind of yeah. uh, yes. if you want to go that direction or if you want to fix something or help for the boys, like if no one knows what the job is and, and you get to create it, that's the coolest part about it. Because if somebody asks, you're like, oh, yeah, well, it's in the rules. You know, They don't ever ask who made the rules or just say, hey, they're in the rules. All right, cool. And then when you heal up and hair over, you know, you can get back online with, with your boys because ultimately we come through the academies together and then they separate us into our teams. And then the guys who stick right. around in the life as you make rank, well, that, it, it starts to wedge back in. And then it bottlenecks, right? And then you got the head shed. And that's usually the boys you came up with. And if it's if Yes, it's, exactly. You know, it's a guy from each little section of the town who knows the town and how it's supposed to operate because each town and each community, even in the, the city, are different because all the people are different. That's the greatest part about, you know, you walk down the street, man, you're going to be in a, in a different time zone, so to speak.
4: So how did exactly. it go? How did your first teaching lesson go?
1: You know what? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because it was a life-changing event. It went over so well, I didn't realize that I had a hidden talent to speak, and to teach. And I look back now, uh, and I realize that I was always, always a very good communicator. I was naturally a good communicator, and I didn't realize I had a hidden talent, you know, to speak in front of people and also to teach. And I really, really loved it. I got this, this unbelievable feeling about commanding the attention of these kids. And so I started going out on a regular basis and I got so good at this, they got rid of my boss, Tommy, and they named me the director of the whole oh, program. no. And still, no, but wait a second, still till today, he thinks I orchestrated that. He <laughs> thinks I wanted his job. No, no, I, I'm serious, you know? And, and and I would never, ever, and Nutella will tell you, we will never do things like that. Sure. You, just don't, you just don't ever, ever do that for no money, for no reason. You don't ever, ever go against a brother or, or a friend or a neighbor or nobody, I'd rather die than go against anybody for anything. And I really mean that. But anyway, but I think, you know, uh, looking back, Tommy, my boss, he had some personal issues with the fire commissioner. And so there was more to the story than he was even telling me. But that's, you know, it's neither here nor there. Uh, he never really told me uh, why they wanted to get rid of him. Uh, he might have thought that I had something to do with it because I was friends with the commissioner, but absolutely, I swear my kids had nothing to do with that. But now, as the new director of the fire department's public education program, I looked back 50 years uh, before I was even in this office and tried to figure out all these years before me what did they ever do here? And the answer was simple nothing nobody wanted to do this it was always a nilly-willy type of uh, personnel as soon as people came in that's how quick they left The management had no continuity so i realized that you know i had an opportunity to kind of make a difference to build this program to see if in fact we can lower fires and fatalities in new york city which is why we were embarking on an aggressive public education program so I thought about the educational process as a whole, even though I am not a teacher. I'm a carpenter, plumber, electrician. And what I realized is that kids like having fun when they learn, and kids like uh, mostly are multi-sensory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time the man crawled out of a cave millions of years ago, he learned by seeing, touching, feeling, and hearing, and that's how kids like learning. So I thought if we were going to be serious about teaching kids and the public as well uh, about preventing and surviving the fires, why don't we have like a learning center where kids can go on a school trip, where they can learn these messages in a very theatrical and a Disney-quality venue. And we sold the idea to Mayor Giuliani. Mayor Giuliani loved the idea, along with the fire commissioner. And I ended up with a $3 million budget to design a new fire safety learning center, the only one in the whole world.
0: And I worked on that
1: project for two years. Uh, and we opened in October of 2000 called the Fire Zone, right next door to Radio City Music Hall, right around the corner from where they put up the big Christmas tree in Rockefeller oh, Center. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we had a prime location, and I actually inherited the property from the owner of Rockefeller Center, who loved my idea so much. He said, Joe, why don't you build your learning center right here in Rockefeller Center? And Jerry Spire, who's Donald Trump times 10 in real estate and money, uh, and a good friend of the fire department, I says, Jerry, you know what? That would be awesome, but we can't afford to pay the rents. He says, yes, you can. He says, I have a piece of property right here in Rockefeller Center. I want to give it to you for 10 years for $1. Oh I God. said, 10 years for $1. I said, all right, Jerry, I'll tell you right right now. 10 years from now, if you triple my rent, I still won't be mad at you.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. That's so crazy. we have
1: So we inherited a piece of property. Right in the heart of Rockefeller Center, this is like getting better and better. Right. So we opened in October. Yeah, we opened in October of 2000 called the Fire Zone, and a month and a half later, in the end of November of 2000, we got a call. We're being nominated for the Thea Award at the Emmys, and we won the Thea Award. We were up against Six Flags and, and Disney World and all these other science centers, and we won this very very prestigious award. Well, you know, I never thought in my wildest imagination that, you know, something like this could come to fruition. It was just an idea. You know, it was a concept. And then after we won this award in November of 2000, I was now spending all my time in promoting my learning center. I didn't only want teachers going there on a class trip. I wanted parents taking their children on the weekends and the evenings, on holidays and up summer vacation. I wanted everybody to get this experience. I wanted everybody to really see how you could both prevent the fire And for fire that wasn't prevented, how might you gain the skills to survive a fire? And you know why? When we were typically having 400 fire deaths per year in New York City, we lowered it down to 52 deaths per year due to fire in a city of 12 million people.
0: Selling a little
1: And so I won all kinds of awards for this learning center. And now it's January of 2001, a couple of months after we won the award. And it's about January 6th or January 7th. I'm sitting in my office in headquarters having a cup of coffee in a bagel and the phone rings. And it's a company called Fisher Price Toys. And I figured, oh, I said, I think you got the wrong number. This is no, we don't. We want to speak to Lieutenant Tarolo. I said, well, that's me. I says, how can I help you? They says, Well, we want to run something by you might be interested in. This is first. Have you ever heard of Fisher Price? I said, I think it's a household name. This is okay, listen, do you have some time to speak? I says, Well, it's nine o'clock. I work till six o'clock and you talk for nine hours. Shoot, what do you got? <laughs> right? And now I and I thought maybe they opened up a new office in Manhattan and maybe they wanted me to go over there and host fire drills. They said, No, it's got nothing to do with that. We wanna tell you something about uh something that kids really love. We have these little action figures that that are called rescue heroes. They said, do you know anything about it? I said, truthfully, no. Well, let us explain it to you. We have a whole line of action figures that kids love. A little police officer called Jake Justice. An ambulance attendant called Perry Medic. We have a lifeguard called Sandy Beach. We have a mountain climber called Cliff Hanger and his partner Rocky Canyon. We have an astronaut called Roger Houston. We have a construction worker called Jack Hammer. We have a scuba diver called Gil Gripper. We have a female firefighter called Wendy Waters. And we want a New York City firefighter to be our new rescue hero, and we're going to call him Billy Blazes. And if you help us design it, we'll give you a dollar if everyone sold around the world. <laughs> well, this sounded like a great idea. The money wasn't going to go in my pocket. That money would go in my education program. And I typically use that kind of funding to buy smoke detectors and give them out, to, give them out free to people in my audiences that were willing to listen to me for an hour on how to both prevent, and survive a fire. It was just a great way of drawing people into my audiences to get my message out there when you give something free, you know. In New York City, if it's free, it's for me. And if you're a copper refinement, if it's free, can you give me three? You know, you know how <laughs> it goes. Yeah. So in any event, in January of two thousand and one, I had a meeting in my head in headquarters in my office with all the Fisher Price executives, the artist illustrators, and toy designers. And for a whole day I'm speaking about what a firefighter looks like with his bunker gear, which is just his firefighting clothing, his Scott pack, his uh His face mask, his tools, and his equipment, and the artists and illustrators had art pads and easels and what crayons and markers they're drawing as I'm speaking. And at the end of the day, they have this new action figure, fully sketched out, a likeness of a New York City firefighter called Billy Blazes. Well, they took the artwork and they went to the factory, and now we fast forward six months later. It's now July of 2001. They called me up. They said, Hey, we got the mold in the prototype. We want you to look it over before it goes into mass production. So I set up another meeting with my bosses, and they came down the first week of July of 2001. And we looked over the Billy Blazers action figure. And there were certain things that we thought they should change and tweak a little bit. So they were taking notes. And so one of the official Price executives, she asked me, She says, Joe, what would you say is really signature about a New York City firefighter? I said, Well, Lori, I says, there's certain things I can't tell you, but there's certain things I can tell you. She says, well, tell me the things you can tell me. I says, well, we have big mustaches and we smoke cigars. She says, well, we're not going to put a cigar on Billy Blazer's (laughs) hand. So she took out a black Sharpie. She says, Joe, he needs to look more like you. And she drew the big mustache on Billy Blazer's and they remolded Billy Blazer's with the big mustache. And that was about a three-week process. They called us up again for another meeting. We now looked it over, and we agreed it can go into mass production, which was the end of July of 2001. They were really excited, and they want to have a big press conference in New York City. They said, where can we have a press conference? Where can we introduce the new rescue hero, uh, Billy Blaze, the New York City firefighter? Well, I was coming upon the first anniversary of the opening of my learning center and I figured, hey, if they're going to do a press conference, why not do it at the fire zone? I'll get free advertisement for my learning center. I didn't think this little action figure was that much of a big deal, but I was playing along because we were going to get some funding from it. So I said, well, why don't we do the press conference at the fire zone? And they said, what's the fire zone? I said, it's a new children's learning center. I co-designed. We opened last year. We won an Emmy Award for it. They said, really? They said, where is it? I said, it's in the heart of Rockefeller Center. They says oh, my God, can we really do it there? I said, yeah, I'm the director. This is oh, my God, this is getting better and better. We're going to introduce the new rescue here. We're at the new Children's Fire Safety Learning Center. How apropos. They said, okay, we know where we're going to do the press conference, but when? I said, okay, I, this is the end of July. I said, let's do it in October. And they said, why? I said, October is fire prevention month. It's the longest running health initiative in the world. It actually goes back to 1871 after, the, after half of Chicago burnt down. And every October since, uh, we captured the month of October to heighten awareness of preventing fires. It's the longest running health initiative in the world. I think it's very appropriate and a natural tie to this project. And they said, yeah, we think so, too, but it's too close to Christmas and the holiday season. We really need to get Billy Blades on the mark a little bit sooner. Well, October was too distant. This is the end of July of 2001. I couldn't really think of another date that was appropriate in between those months. And I was kind of brainstorming. I said, you know, 911 is the emergency phone number in New York City when you need help from police officers, firefighters, or ambulance attendants. I said, why don't we, for the first time, have a 911 themed safety day and introduce Billy Blazers? And they said, oh my God, what a great idea. So on 911, September 11, 2001, at nine o'clock in the morning, every TV station, every newspaper reporter was waiting for me to introduce the new rescue hero, Billy Blaze, is a New York City firefighter. And as I was getting ready to leave my office and headquarters, somebody said a plane just hit the World Trade Center. It's on the T V in the conference room, which was next to my office. And so I went to the conference room and I says, uh What's going on? I said, is this a movie? Is this a simulation? This is, no, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, every emergency vehicle is going to be rushing into Manhattan. I better get out of headquarters and 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 beat them over the Brooklyn Bridge. Otherwise, I'm going to be stuck in traffic, and my bosses are going to be waiting for me at Rockefeller Center with the Fisher-Price executives. And I'm going to be stuck in traffic, and I'm, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. I I, I should have left an hour ago. And so I zoomed out of headquarters in my fire department vehicle, and two blocks away, I'm on the Brooklyn Bridge going into Manhattan, and I'm looking to the left, about an eighth of a mile away, I could see about 10 floors of fire all around the top of the North Tower. And originally, I'm thinking this is my, maybe a little Piper Cub, but now I'm saying this is no little Piper Cub, that had to have been a regular commercial jetliner, or maybe a military aircraft. And so by the time I got over to Brooklyn Bridge, which was probably maybe 20, 25 seconds, I had to make an impromptu decision. Do I make a right turn and head up to Rockefeller Center, or do I make a left turn and get to my old firehouse across the street from the Twin Towers and uh, get a set of firefighting clothing and spring into action? And that's exactly what I did. I said, the heck with Billy Blazes. This ain't happening today. And I got to my old firehouse at 9 o'clock in the morning because I knew all those guys. They were all my friends. I broke most of them into the fire department, you know, when there were new firefighters before I left to become a lieutenant. And I got there at exactly nine o'clock in the morning and I parked my vehicle in the back of the firehouse on the sidewalk so I wouldn't block any emergency vehicles. And I ran around to the front of the firehouse. Both of the doors of the firehouse were left wide open, but both engine 10 and ladder 10 had already responded to the North Tower. And I ran in to the firehouse to borrow a set of firefighting clothing, but it was hard to get in, even though the doors were open. People and civilians were laying all over the floor of the firehouse. Some had been hit with jet fuel. Some were hit with pieces of the building. Some were bleeding. Some were crying. Some were screaming. Some were in shock. Uh, nobody looked like they were in critical condition. So I grabbed a set of firefighting clothing from another fireman by the name of Tommy McNamara, no who was off duty. We all leave our firefighting clothing in the firehouse, so there was no Problem, you know, uh, borrowing a set of gear, and I put on the firefighting clothing, and I ran out of the firehouse, and I had to run past the south tower in order to get to the north tower. And as I'm running past the south tower, I hear a roar, and I look up, and the second jet came right over my head. United Airlines Flight 175, and I watched it slam right through the tower, and this huge fireball came right down at me. I turned and I ran. I made it back into the firehouse. I would have been killed right there. And at that point, I realized and I ver- I realized and verbalized everybody. I said, well, there a terrorist attack. I said, everybody on the top of the buildings are going to die. I said, we're not going to get to them. They're not getting down. And I said, these buildings are going to collapse. People said, what? I said, these buildings are going to collapse. And, of course, so many years later now, as I travel around the country, people always ask me, why did you say that? Or how did you know that? Well, because— Before I was a firefighter, I went to school for architecture and engineering. I used to design high-rise buildings in college. That's what I really wanted to do with my life. I told you the construction industry is my passion. And two of my professors in college, Louis Radioli, who just died last year, and George Borey, were working for the concrete contractor on the Twin Towers, but they were part-time civil engineering professors And so with their position at the World Trade Center, working for a concrete company, they could take us as engineering students on a class trip to study the towers when they were going up. And we would marvel as new engineering students that these buildings, the biggest buildings in the world at the time, seemed to be so lightweight and flimsy. Where's the rest of the steel that's going to hold up these buildings? And the professor said, no, this is a new lightweight, radical design. And, of course, now, so many years later, on September 11th, all those memories are coming back to me about being there and studying those buildings. And to me, it's so obvious that the buildings are doomed to collapse, but nobody wants to believe me. That
4: is crazy. So what happened
1: next? So, what happened next was that I realized now so now I realized that the buildings are going to come down, but I didn't think that I didn't think that they would collapse until about three o'clock in the afternoon, so I really believe we had five to six hours to get everybody from the from below the point of impact and below, I knew that we would never attempt to get to the people above. That would be a futile effort. There was no way we were going to get to them, and there was no way they were getting down. For the first time in my career, I never felt so vulnerable and so useless to look up at people as if I could speak to them so many floors above to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. As they were hanging out the window, waving an article of clothing, looking down at us, And I'm imagining what they're trying to say to me, like, get up here and help us. We can't take it no more. And at that point, they just started jumping out of the building. And uh, I know two to three hundred people jumped. They were jumping all around me. And uh, every time they jumped, uh, you had to be careful you didn't get hit by one of them. And so I'll always remember, you know, that mostly uh, watching people. Uh, in the last 10 seconds of their life. As a firefighter, in all the incidents I responded to, you know, I always experienced death in many different ways car accidents and every horrible death you can imagine you experience as a firefighter or a police officer or, or a first responder. But when you get to the scene or whatever that emergency was that you responded to, you come upon a dead person, right? But today, on September 11th, it's different. I'm watching people die. I'm sharing in the last 10 seconds of their life. I'm looking at them up above. They're waving and then they jump and I'm counting from one to 10 for the time they hit the ground and then then they're dead, you know? So that is something that's very hard for me to process because I had to share the last 10 seconds of their life instead of just come upon a scene where they're already expired, and in that last 10 seconds you're saying what could I or should I have done and the answer was nothing there's nothing that you could have done but you know to watch them and and say a quick prayer before they hit the ground and then they just totally once they hit the ground they just totally disappeared it, 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 there was nothing i hate to be uh, graphic but there was nothing left when they hit the ground and except a wet spot in in, in the street and, and and after a while um it was just getting worse and worse. More and more people were jumping. They were being uh, uh, kind of inspired by others. They were coming down, holding hands, hugging each other. It it was just crazy. And then at that point, I realized, you know what, we're going to lose a lot of people. And uh, who I was concerned most about were the EMTs and the paramedics because they were setting up their treatment and their triage area in the lobby of both towers. And I'm figuring, you know, By the end of the night, we're going to need EMTs and paramedics more than anybody. And I wanted them to get out of the lobby and move their triage area a couple of blocks away that we would just transport people to them. But they didn't want to leave. They didn't understand why I was telling them they had to get out of the lobby. They couldn't understand why I was saying that the buildings would collapse. And I was just very adamant about it. You know, they were a little hesitant, but I got all of them out of the lobbies. And I was outside the South Tower, and I'm hot, I'm sweaty, and I'm kind of aggravated because I'm arguing with people. And then I hear a loud rumble and a roar, and I look up, and here comes the building, you know, 55 minutes after being struck. And I said to myself, you idiot, you're the one who knew this building was going to collapse, and you put yourself right underneath it. And I started running. I figured I had about 10 seconds left to live before I would be dead. And I just kept running as fast as I can. And as the building was collapsing, one floor on top of another below, it would puff out air like a fireplace bellows. And uh, I could feel the air pressure on the back of my neck as I was running. And as each floor was hitting the floor below faster and faster, that wind pressure was getting stronger and stronger where it took my helmet off of my head. And I was watching my helmet fly faster than I was running. I was trying to make it underneath a footbridge over the main thoroughfare thinking if I could make it to that footbridge, it might find and identify my body. And then at that point, the air pressure was so strong, it lifted me off of my feet. The estimator was like 200 miles an hour. I don't know who estimated that, but they said it was like a tornado gust. It lifted me off my feet. I was flying through the air, and then a piece of steel hit me in the back of the head and split the back of my head wide open. Huge slabs of concrete would just hit my body. Now I got a fractured skull, all my ribs are broke, my left arm is snapped in half, my neck and spine is crushed, I'm bleeding internally, and I'm suffocating in this darkness under this huge dust cloud, and I'm buried with all these other people under tons of steel and, and concrete, and, and um, they're all screaming in the darkness, screaming, then the scream turns into cries, cries into whimpers, whimpers into silence, and one by one, I guess they had all died and I was still alive and uh i did something i hadn't done in a long time i closed my eyes and i said a prayer i was now in the middle of all these fires i couldn't breathe there was no more air left there was no light it was dark and i was afraid i was going to burn to death and i was i prayed to god to suffocate me before i burned to death and i said a prayer because i didn't want to die angry and i says god i says uh take me and uh you know uh I- i'm good with it you know uh I, I I never realized I was going to live up to that vow that I took when I became a firefighter, that I'd one day give up my life. But if this is what it has to be, uh, I'm fine. It's a decision I made to become a firefighter. So I accept it. Just take care of my family. And then I had a, uh, you know, a flashback to the day that I was sworn in and I kept on saying to myself, you never thought you were going to live up to that vow. And I said, well, today is it, you know, like you never thought, you know, when you woke up this morning that it would all end this way. And then after about 25 minutes, they found a void and they found me and they dug me out and put me on a stretcher and they ran across the street to the Hudson River where boats had come from New Jersey and they put me on the deck of a boat and they are holding my head closed. And uh, I heard them saying I was going to die if they couldn't get me to a hospital. And then there was another loud rumble and a roar and now people started screaming, oh my God, here comes the other tower. Now the North Tower collapsed, flew across the street and millions of shards of glass of, uh, just raining down on the deck of the boat. Everybody on the boat jumped overboard into the river, and I was left behind, strapped to a long spine board. And somehow my right index finger hit the release belt, and I rolled off the stretcher and felt the doorway, and I jumped into the doorway, not knowing it was the entrance to the engine room 10 feet down. I dove headfirst head 10 feet down into the engine room, and now the North Tower buried the boat on the river, and I'm suffocating alone again in the engine room, and after about an hour of, uh, you know, after about an hour, I was losing consciousness. And then I heard people jumping on the deck of the boat, and I heard voices. And somebody came into the engine room to start the motor, and they found me. He yelled upstairs to the captain. And he said, there's a fireman down here. This guy ain't going to make it. The captain came down. He signed the flashlight. I says, come on, we got to get this boat out of here. And next thing I know, the boat skipped across the river. Uh, to the New Jersey side where paramedics were waiting, and they jumped onto the boat, and I heard them saying, there's a fireman in the engine. we got to get him out of there. So the paramedics in New Jersey came into the engine room with another spine board, strapped me. They got me out, and I was in an ambulance, and then I blacked out. And then when I woke up, I remember them running me into a hospital, but I didn't know where I was. I was in another state. I was now in New Jersey, in Jersey City Trauma Center, and they were cutting my uh, firefighting clothing off in the operating room and we all write our name on the inside flap of our code. It said Thomas McNamara. So I was admitted as Thomas McNamara for three days, and I was, at, I was totally out of it. I was on morphine, so I didn't even know that I was misidentified. So for three days, I was declared dead because I was misidentified as Tommy McNamara. And so the following morning, on September 12th, people realized that Superman's not real, Batman and Robin's not real. Uh, Spider-Man's not real. The only children's rescue hero, whoever came to life, was Billy Blazers on the morning of September 11th when he would come to represent 343 firefighters who made the supreme sacrifice, and he left me behind to tell their story, and that's how the whole day started.
2: Yeah, that's a tough day, all right. Good. I
1: know it's just an ironic story, but that's how the whole day started with a new children's rescue hero I helped design for Fisher-Price Toys and so here it was back in February of this year. I got a phone call from Fisher-Price Toys. And they asked me, how was I doing? And I was just filling them in. They says, hey, look, you know, we're going to resurrect our rescue hero line. And they says we're going to make one just for you. And, and Fisher-Price's new rescue hero is Joe Chiroo. Uh, That's awesome.
4: Fitting. Oh, my gosh. That is just That's the well craziest deserved,
2: story. And God definitely got a plan for you. I tell you what. When, you, when you're kind of in hell like that, when there's a bunch in the spot you're in, you lay down and say that prayer, man. He heard you, brother. And he does. He's got a plan for you. And you're on it. So keep doing what you're doing.
4: Whatever happened to the guy that, that you were wearing his coat?
1: Oh, Tommy was home. Tommy was off duty. He was at home with his wife. He had no idea what was going on. And, you know, people were interviewing me when I got out of the hospital. They asked me, why do I think I survived? And I said, honestly, I really don't know. I don't have an, a legitimate answer, except I said, if you owed out as much money as I owed out, you'd have a lot of people praying for you, too. <laughs> so if you, you want to live, live a long life, keep borrowing keep money from people because they pray for you every single night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? Wait, exactly. Were you married at the time? Yeah, I was married at the time. You know, I had four kids. My kids were very young. And uh, all I kept on thinking when I was buried under the rubble. I was thinking about my four kids. I had been promising that I was going to take them to Disney World. And I just had been so busy with this project. I just never got around. And then I started thinking, who's going to be the new daddy that's going to come into their life and take them to Disney World? And it's not going to be me. And, and, and why didn't I just take them when they, you know, I, I should have just set time aside and taken them to Disney World. And I said, I blew this opportunity and there'll be a new daddy one day. I'm sure, you know, another man will come into my wife's life and there'll be a new father and they'll get to do all these things with him. And I should have been doing it with them. And I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. You know, you you make decisions in life. And I just said to God, you know, I'm ready Come, come and get me. But he he, he didn't take me. And I was very angry. Uh, I I know you're going to think that this is a lie. And it's something I never really spoke about. I kept it to myself. I just didn't want to verbalize it. You know, for the 10 years after 9-11, uh, I was in this very, very dark, dark place. Um, still not out of it 100%. And people asked me, Joe, did you have uh, survivor's guilt? And I says, uh, you know what? I says, I think I'm ready to say it. But I said, no, I had something much worse. Well, what's worse than survivor's guilt? I said, I actually had survivor's guilt anger i was actually angry that i had survived i actually had wanted to die that day and i couldn't imagine why god allowed 343 firefighters to march up to heaven together and he didn't leave me that honor to be with them i just couldn't understand why wasn't i given the honor to be with them and to forever be known as a hero and as i was traveling around the country everywhere i go people would tell me joe god saved your life for a reason He's got a bigger, bigger mission in this world for you. And so three years after 9-11, after getting out of the hospital, I was back in headquarters, convalescing. And in two thousand and four, the fire department made a decision that I would never ever go back because of the brain injury. And they uh they officially retired me in February two thousand and four. And I was devastated. You know, I had to walk away from, you know, the thing I love most in life. The thing that meant everything was my career, my department. And I didn't know where I was going to go uh, from there. And I fell into a very, very deep, dark depression. And uh, I didn't know if I'd ever come out of it. And uh, I didn't know, you know, where do I go from here? You know, I could pick up my circular saw again and, you know, do something, some home improvement projects, Habitat for Humanity. And then I realized that the United States had been suffering for so long and that we had become a split country on racial and religion, sexual and all the other lines that everybody knows that was split upon, not one way, but like 50 different ways. And so I thought that I would uh, try to make our country the reunited States of America. And I took a huge American flag that I got from businessmen in California, and I want to fly that big American flag on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 at the World Trade Center at the Shanksville, Pennsylvania crash site and down at the Pentagon all on the same day. I would call it the Patriot flag. It would be an honor of every man and woman who ever served our country in, in the armed services. Uh, it would be in memory of all those that died on 9-11 and would pay homage to all the first responders uh, of every community in the United States. It's just my way of, of honoring and, and remembering people. And so I had 50 weeks before the 10th anniversary, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that flag in, in, in that 50 weeks before the 10th anniversary. What am I going to do with this flag? So somebody says, Hey Joe, there's 50 States. Maybe you could fly the flag in all 50 States. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's the logistics are more than I could ever, ever handle. So, uh, me and my friend Mitch, we called up the FedEx corporation and we told them, you know, what we were thinking about doing. He's a firefighter in San Diego and, and he's like my partner in the mission and the, the we just got the right person on the phone and they said, look, if you could pull off this project, we'll send that flag anywhere it has to go for free. So in 50 weeks before nine eleven, we flew that flag in 275 cities in 50 states in 50 weeks, wow. as far north as North Pole on Christmas Eve in minus 20 degree weather, as far south as Honolulu, Hawaii, as hot as 118 degrees in Bullhead City, Arizona. And on the 10th anniversary, we flew it in three locations of the attacks, all on the same day. And two days later, on September 13th, 2011, two days after the 10th anniversary, I was given the rare honor and privilege to fly that flag and speak at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And the following day, on September 14th, at the place and on the anniversary where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, I flew the flag at Fort McHenry. And on the 4th of July, I hung it on Betsy Ross's house in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she stitched the very first American flag. And the mission was just about complete. And then I got a call, I got a report down to the Pentagon. And I went down there, and the, the Justice Department says, we need your help. We need to speak to you. i well, okay. I mean, you know, you're the Pentagon. What do I, What do you need me to do? They said, Joe, we want you to represent the United States at the trial in Guantanamo, Cuba, against the five terrorists that are being uh, detained that orchestrated the attack. So I'm currently in the middle of the biggest trial in history. I'm giving testimony at that trial to convict all five of them, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM is what we call him for short. He's Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, and he's the one who orchestrated the whole attack. So I'll be flying back there real soon again to get actual testimony. But when I first went there for the pre-trial hearings, I asked the lead prosecutor, if I could take the Patriot flag, i told him the whole story about the flag. He says, Joe, what a great story. I says, can I take that flag with me at, on its last mission? He says, Joe, if you don't take the flag, you're not coming to Guantanamo. And that's all I needed to hear. I took the Patriot flag to Guantanamo, Cuba, and flew it outside the courthouse where all five of them are being held and charged for uh, orchestrating the attacks against us. And I made it clear that that American flag, not just because it's 30 by 60, because it's a huge American flag, doesn't give it any more prominence than the little flag on the on, on lapel of a president's uh, suit jacket. I said, but if you look at that flag of 13 red and white stripes, it's the most noted symbol of liberty, freedom and justice to every person in all 198 countries around the globe. And I said, you, the terrorist, should have looked a little closer at that flag. I said, that blue field of 50 white stars that represent every state of our great nation, those stars are arranged in nine rows and 11 columns, symbolizing the day you made the biggest mistake challenging the integrity of this country and the American people. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am going to bring back justice for the people of the United States and for every member of the military and all those who who suffered and died on 9-11. I'm going to bring back justice for you people when I'm put on that, when I'm put on that standing, giving testimony as a credible survivor and an eyewitness to the attack. Well, that's why you survived. Amen. Man, I'm wore out. (laughs) My message to the American people is simple. You and I, we know we owe no excuses to any person in this world to say that we're proud to be an American. Because as we speak today, if we go back to our founding father, George Washington, the first president of our country, 1,343,812 men and women took up arms and served in every branch of the military and laid down their lives so that we can have a life that we enjoy today that came at a huge expense. To somebody before us, and every person in this country right now has an obligation—maybe not a legal one, but a moral one—to leave this country a better one for our children, our grandchildren. And if anybody doesn't believe what I say, or if there's handfuls of people somewhere in this country who don't really think that we're living in the best country in the world, I'll let them in on a little secret. There are 197 other countries around the globe besides the United States of America. There's 14,200 airports in the United States of America. Anybody who's not satisfied living in this country, whether you were born here or whether you came here— You'll have no problem finding a flight, taking you to another place where you think you're going to find it better. And if you're silly enough to take me up on the offer, everybody knows you'd be smart enough to book that trip with a round-trip ticket because as soon as you leave, that's how quick you'll be right back here again because it just doesn't get any better than the great USA.
4: Yeah.
2: Amen.
1: Joe,
3: thank you so much for being on the show today. It really means means everything to us, and uh, we're grateful for you sharing our, your story and, and your service and sacrifice
1: well, great. So if you ever come up to New York, you know, I'm a tour guide at Ground Zero. I volunteer my time and I, I take the members of the military, uh, you know, on a personal tour of Ground Zero and I get to share the day with them and, and give them an opportunity to ask me the kinds of questions.
2: Hey, I bring my they, family out to New York, uh, before the week before Christmas to get in the Christmas spirit. I'll get your number after this you and uh, give, I'll call you.
1: Well, listen, you got to give me a call because I want to host a dinner
2: at my house for you guys.
4: We would love that. Yeah,
2: absolutely, brother. Like I said, when when we wrap okay. this, yeah, when we wrap this up, man, I'll uh, I'll get your number and 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 give you a shout. Hey, uh, I
4: have a quick question. Yeah, actually, um, do you still do work with the fire zone?
1: Uh no! What happened was uh, the it's weird. The fire department retired me. Then the next day, they called me back and they said, you know what, Joe, we knew you never go. We we knew we'd never let you go back as an active fireman, but we need you back, and they hired me back as a consultant doing the same thing I was doing. Well, I was a uniformed uh, fire safety, uh, you know, director. And so I worked another two years as a consultant to them. And then I kind of, I resigned because I, I, I needed to stabilize my family life and my wife and kids because I was never home. And, you know, I was becoming like an absentee father. But sometimes I wish I would have stayed. But, yes, I still go back to the fire zone from time to time. But I'm not really overly directly involved although it's really still my passion you know I'm probably one of the most knowledgeable guys in the world and, I, and I, I'm not just casually saying that in regards to fire prevention and fire survival I will debate anybody on the subject and it's such a passion to me you know that it, it'll always be um on the back of my mind on how I could always promote you know fire safety and communities.
4: can anyone go there I'd love to take our family there
1: Yes, anybody go there? If you guys come up to New York, I want to take you to the fire zone. I want you to go through the experience.
4: That's awesome. So, what do you do now? How can we promote anything you've
1: got going on? Well, here's the deal. You know, I do a lot of speaking around the country. You know, uh, you know, I do a lot of corporate speaking. I do volunteer stuff, and I do a lot of charity stuff. Uh, what I really need right now is uh, I, I, I need you know a, a exposure. You know, in, in, in public speaking. You know, uh, so. If anybody can get the word out, you know, my website is www.joe.torillo.com. I have 37 topics on a speaking menu, very, very interesting topics. You know, I have a little top, I have a topic for just about any company, organization, or association. And a client can choose one topic or they can choose as many topics as they like. Sometimes uh, a client will say, Joe, I like topic two, I like seven, I like 12, or like 23, I like 34. And I'll take those chosen topics and I'll combine them into one custom presentation so that the client gets to choose what messages their attendees hear, not me. You see, I believe that when you go into a restaurant, you choose your food, not the waiter. And I think that the client, has a need for messages for their attendees to hear, and that's what the speaker should do. The speaker should listen to the client and deliver the messages that they want their attendees to hear. So, you know, in my menu, it's such a broad, broad range of very interesting topics, and with all those topics, I typically parallel my life experiences, you know, to make those topics really believable. That's awesome. Are you on social media? I am, as a matter of fact, you know that's something I I got to get better at, or I have to get people who could really help me. Uh, you know, I I, I work with a, a a a publicist down in Dallas, Texas, for the last year and a half, and uh, they have a Facebook page, but uh, I, I I just probably need to find, you know, um, you know more outlets and, and how to get myself out there in public speaking. You know, every other professional speaker that i have met on the circuit they've all told me that my potential is huge. Uh, the, the the problem is getting people to put me in front of clients instead of waiting for clients to find me.
2: Well, you keep doing what you're doing. I don't think that'll be a problem. I mean, uh, yeah, like I said, the good Lord's got a plan for you, and, and you just keep doing no. what you're doing, brother. I swear, man. I, I, there you go. I, they, you're an amazing man, and we're lucky to have you.
1: I can't wait to get to meet you in person.
2: I'm looking forward to it. It's definitely going to happen. Yeah. Be careful for what you wish so for. So stay it. in touch.
1: Yeah, if I could do anything in the world for you, please just reach out because, you know, uh, you know, it's something I believe very strongly in and, and I'm very sincere about it.
2: All right, brother. God bless, you, man. Take care. Thank, thank,
1: you. thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. You no, know, you're welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, you bye Bye-bye.
3: Man, that interview was incredible. I want to take a second to thank one of today's sponsors.
0: Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow.
2: Joe, thanks for, again for coming on and sharing that with our listeners, man, especially around uh, this this time of year. It it means a lot. And it it, it just goes to show, man, that everybody was kind of going through a battle. Our war started there. It started with y'all. Just like with Pearl Harbor and everything, man, and you guys were the, the front line, our front line military there. You guys were in uniform, and uh, everybody had to go through something amazing and something terrifying. God bless you guys for doing that and for and for what you you still do man the fact that you throw on a uniform and run into a fire in somebody else's house ought to tell you how wonderful you are I mean think about that like if, they, if you if you show up somewhere and, and the people are screaming at you then you just I mean my opinion leave I <laughs> mean if, you're, if your house if your house on fire you call me up I show up and you yell at me well what's what are you talking about <laughs> you know what I mean See <laughs> I don't have to be doing this and those guys they sign up that's just because they got that warrior mentality inside of them man only they're they fight fire but you can't negotiate with that thing. You can't do nothing. And then if it gets around something like buildings, like concrete and steel, and combines with that, then it'll scream at you. And it'll make noise. And you still can't talk to it. And they stand in that and, and take that with that sword, that water. You know, that's what I mean, that's what we're molded from, water. That's what they fight with, water. That's right. So kind of the same species. We both survive in water <laughs> and through it. That's probably one of the most dangerous things that, that we have are people that can do, which is which means their paychecks would probably be the highest, right? Kind of whatever CEO is that they're watching their building over, whatever he makes, that's how much the chief should make. <laughs> Wouldn't that be you awesome? Mean? That's how it should so be. It's like, hey, bro, I mean, if you really like this stuff. Yeah, you want to go in yeah, there. building? If it's that important to you, then <laughs> our training should be that important. Yeah. That's why we're so, tra- so well-trained because people's safety is important to them. We love you guys, man. God bless y'all. Thanks, Joe. If you want to be the first one to know when we drop a new episode, then you need to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can press the purple subscription button on Apple Podcasts or any other major podcast player to be notified the moment we release a new episode. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any other podcast player. We've got a ton of great episodes and had some incredible guests along the way, including J.J. Watt, David Goggins, and LaDamian Washington. If you're already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you know we keep our followers up to date with new gear, sales,
3: guests, new events, and tons of other stuff. You're not going to get anywhere else. If you're not following us yet, you're missing out. Follow us right now at Team Underscore Never Quit. You can keep up with Marcus at Marcus Latrell, Morgan at Mojo Latrell, and me at Andrew Brockenbush on Instagram.
2: Man, to all of our brothers and sisters out there in New York, and the firefighters and police, and just civilians like shop owners. I mean, if you were down there and you had to go through that, well, we we you know, kind of our generation has been through a battle and for a long time still in one and that's okay i mean that's what our generation is we can take it and we still take it every single day and we keep getting back up and going back in Uh, you know the hotter the fire the the pure the gold so to speak and you guys are that do that job y'all are pure gold so thank you for that and and for everybody who just supports our country and the flag and everything that we stand for because it's an amazing place that we live in and um we should treat it accordingly And by doing that, that means we treat each other accordingly. Like I said, man, we're not a place, we're a people. So God bless you guys. I'm out. See you guys.
0: Selling a little, or a lot...